0: The Boston Pops concert is still on, but the weather's a concern on the Esplanade right now, where thousands are gathered for the annual concert and fireworks display. Spectators have been asked to seek shelter. We'll find out just what's happening there and what's ahead in the forecast on this Tuesday, July 4th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Independence Day on Lisa Mullins. Also coming up this hour, it's been one year since the deadly mass shooting shocked residents of Highland Park, Illinois.
1: For many of them, they feel that it doesn't feel like a year has transpired. It feels like just yesterday. Those emotions, those wounds, they're still healing and still going to take time.
0: Also ahead, a record number of Americans are traveling for this holiday, according to projections from AAA. And a new PBS miniseries explores the many effects the human species is having on the planet. It's 4.01. News headlines and the forecast are coming up.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The streets are quiet, celebrations scrapped in one Philadelphia neighborhood as officials say a criminal prosecution is getting underway against a 40-year-old suspect they say opened fire last night, apparently shooting indiscriminately. Here's police commissioner Danielle Outlaw.
3: On what was supposed to be a beautiful summer evening, this armed and armored individual wreaked havoc, firing with a rifle at their victims, seemingly at random, shooting
2: seven, killing five including children, babies. Jim Kenney is the Philadelphia mayor.
4: I am frustrated and outraged that mass shootings like this continue to happen in communities across the United States.
2: In Baltimore, 30 people were shot at a block party this weekend, and in Fort Worth, Texas last night, at least nine were hurt when shots were fired into a crowd after a festival. No arrests have been made in either attack. President Biden today renewing calls for an assault weapons ban. In Israel, after two days of intense fighting that left 12 Palestinians dead and 100 wounded, an Israeli military spokesman tells NPR the offensive in Janine refugee camp is expected to end soon. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv.
5: The Israeli military says it has begun to withdraw its troops from the Janine refugee camp. Chief military spokesman Daniel Hagari.
0: Because we obtained most of our goals in the next hours, we'll finish the operation. This chapter will end.
5: More than 1,000 Israeli troops have been operating in the camp. Since Monday, Israel says it has apprehended dozens of Palestinian suspects, confiscated weapons, and dismantled explosives factories. It has also carried out about 20 airstrikes with drones. The United Nations estimates up to a quarter of the camp's population has fled. There have been reports of exchanges of fire around a hospital. Israel tore up roads, it says, were booby-trapped, leading to major water and electricity outages, which still need repair. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel
2: Aviv. There are red flag warnings in parts of Oregon and Washington state where hot and dry conditions are leading to wildfire risk. Bellamy Palthorpe from member station KNKX reports from Seattle authorities are now urging caution for those who want to use fireworks.
6: July 4th always brings extra risk of fire, but this year
7: a very warm and dry forecast for the holiday is coming on top of a moderate drought. Matthew Deer is the state's lead wildland fire meteorologist.
8: Both Los Angeles and San Francisco received more rain in the first six months of 2023 than Seattle did. So we're, we've fallen behind um, in terms of precipitation, especially on the west side.
7: Fireworks, improper dousing of campfires, and sparks from vehicles dragging chains are top causes. The dry heat here is expected to continue for at least another week. For NPR News, I'm Bellamy
0: Palethorpe in Seattle. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. In the run-up to tonight's Boston Pops Concert and Fireworks show on the Esplanade in Boston, state police are no longer allowing people access to the lawn by the hatch shell. They're asking people to leave the area, but they're not mandating it. Officials say it's due to the heavy rain and possibility of lightning. WBUR's Solon Kelleher is at the hatch shell right now. Solon, hi hi lisa so what are officials telling people in the area and how exactly are they telling them how are they getting the message out
9: sure right now it seems like the most efficient means that they're uh telling people to get out is just uh by word of mouth they're turning people away who are still um showing up despite the rain uh and then the second uh way that that they're getting this word out is through one of those emergency alerts that goes through uh, everybody's phone uh, and that's read for people okay. to please evacuate the Boston Pops event area and seek shelter due to incoming weather. Uh, all gates are closed and will reopen when it's safe to do so. Officials are saying that's going to be about 5 o'clock, but I also heard 5.30 uh, might be a time when when gates are reopening. And it, it should be noted that this isn't a mandatory evacuation. I just confirmed with uh, somebody who works with the BSO a few moments ago that this was a voluntary Um, evacuation in case the weather got worse.
0: So we're going to be hearing about the weather and and, uh, what's ahead for the next couple hours in just about a minute from Danielle Noyes, our meteorologist. But are people heeding the warning, at least? Are they leaving the Esplanade area or staying there?
9: Yes. And it it was almost accidental for some people because, you know, throughout the day, you're free to come and go as you please as long as you go through security. So many people had already left, and then they came back to, uh, to find that the gates had been closed. But for the most part, I think people, as I'm looking around, people are mostly uh, either out of here. Uh, they, they went inside the fruit to get out of the rain, or they're underneath some covering. Uh, yeah. They, uh, and also, uh, the, the tone of, um, of everybody here is optimistic. Um, whether it's the guests or the people working here, uh, there, there's, uh, there's hope that this concert, and uh, pretty much, uh, I'd say, certainty that the concert is going to uh, continue on.
0: That the concert will start as planned and then the fireworks the will plan. follow tonight at 10 30.
9: that's that's what i'm hearing
0: Solon callaher at the Hatchell in boston thanks so much thank you lisa wbr meteorologist daniel noyce joins us now daniel how long is this nasty weather going to last and what do you expect will be happening in uh the next couple of hours
7: so i would say lisa in the next mm, i'd give it an hour and a half Uh, that the back edge of the rain is going to come through the city of Boston. I'm looking at the live radar right now, and the good news is there's no lightning in and around the city. There are some flash flood warnings, but they're south of Boston, in through Bristol and Plymouth County. There's um, torrential rain, as well as a bunch of lightning south of the city, but that's moving in the opposite direction. So, yes, we're into the rain right now, and it's coming down at a good clip, but I'd give it the next hour and a half, 5.30 to 6, that back edge comes through, and then we're pretty much done for the rest of the evening, which is great news for the fireworks
0: right and done meaning no clouds around or just no rain no thunder no rain
7: um no thunder Uh, that ends the rain ends by 5 30 to 6 and then we will stay mostly cloudy there won't be much wind the only i'd say kind of tricky part is there is going to be fog just off the coastline it's always tricky as to like whether or not it comes right into the city or just hugs the coast i'm thinking it just hugs the coast right now and so the fireworks should be fine but obviously You know, everyone's kind of picky about the fireworks, depending on the wind and stuff. Sometimes it blows uh, the fireworks a little too much. Sometimes, you know, you get the smoke that kind of lingers. And that will be the case because the wind isn't that strong. It'll probably be like five miles per hour or less with mostly cloudy skies. But rain will be done absolutely by that point.
0: Well, what happens after that? Uh, Sounds like we've got better weather on the way.
7: Oh, tomorrow and Thursday and Friday actually look really nice. It's going to be much brighter. Tomorrow will be dry. There may be an isolated thunderstorm, but it would be well inland tomorrow, hit or miss. Nothing like what we have out there today. Um, Tomorrow, Thursday and Friday. And we're going to be a little bit warmer, too. We're actually looking right now 68 degrees in the city of Boston, but humid, right? So we'll be hot and humid. Mid-80s tomorrow through Friday. Some spots inland will touch 90, so the heat index is going to be in the low 90s, but a a dry, quieter, warmer stretch for Wednesday through Friday.
0: Okay, we'll talk to you again uh, next hour. No holiday for you, Danielle. Thank you so much for being (laughs) with us. Thanks, Lisa. WBUR's Danielle Noyce, 68 degrees now in the Boston area at 409.
4: WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. 171 Julys ago, the escaped slave turned orator and activist, Frederick Douglass gave perhaps his most famous speech to a group of fellow abolitionists. He posed this question. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? His address confronted the glaring hypocrisy of a day celebrating freedom in a country that still endorsed the bondage and forced labor of more than one in eight of its residents. And while the institution of slavery has long been abolished, its consequences have endured through the generations. I am the
11: great, great,
12: great
5: granddaughter of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass Douglas is my great, 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 I've great.
10: been counting on my fingers since
12: yeah. I was like five. I am the great, 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 great grandchild of Frederick Douglass.
10: Three years ago, NPR asked some of Frederick Douglass's descendants to read excerpts of that speech. And on this 4th of July, we are again revisiting those words from 1852.
13: This is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. Fellow citizens,
12: I shall not presume to dwell at length on the associations that cluster about this day. The simple story of it is that 76 years ago, the people of this country were British subjects.
5: Oppression makes a wise man mad. Your fathers were wise men, and if they did not go mad, they became restive under this treatment.
12: With brave men, there's always a remedy for oppression. They succeeded, and today you reap the fruits of their success. The freedom gained is yours and you, therefore, may properly celebrate this anniversary. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask why am I
3: called
11: upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence?
5: Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us?
13: I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high
12: independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common.
11: The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me.
5: The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me.
13: This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn.
12: Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a Fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not
13: light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake.
12: The feeling of the nation
13: must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused.
5: The propriety of the nation must be startled.
13: The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced.
12: What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham.
5: Your boasted liberty and unholy license.
13: Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless.
5: Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence.
12: Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings.
5: With all your religious parade and solemnity are to him
12: Mere bombast. Fraud. Deception. Impiety. And hypocrisy. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. Fourth of July still doesn't mean that much. Um, We're still second class citizens. I don't think it's hopeless. Somebody once said that pessimism is a tool of white oppression. And I think that's true. I think in many ways we are still um, slaves to the notion that it will never get better. But I think that there is hope. um, And I think it's important that we celebrate Black joy and Black life. And we remember that change is possible, change is probable,
10: um, and that there's hope. That was Isidore Douglas Skinner. You also heard Alexa Ann Watson, Haley Rose Watson, Zoe Douglas Skinner, and Douglas Washington Morris II. All of them descendants of Frederick Douglass, reading his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? You can watch a video of that reading and more of their reflections at npr.org. If we're catching you while you are on your way somewhere today, out to see fireworks maybe, or to and from an airport, well, you're in good company. A record number of Americans are traveling for this holiday, according to AAA, and it's been a hot, stormy, and not always smooth experience this year. NPR's Camila Dominowski joins us now, and Camila, why are so many people traveling?
14: It's a hard question to answer for sure, but I guess I'll just put it this way. Wana, don't you feel like you need a vacation?
10: I do, and I feel like we should both go take one. But anyway, what's the breakdown of the numbers and how people (laughs) are getting around right now?
14: so as usual most people are driving it's actually the biggest number of people ever hitting the road on a july 4th 43 million people are driving for the holiday then you have a small number of people who are taking cruises trains buses that group of people is up from last year but it's it's still under pre-pandemic levels it's never recovered from the big decline at the start of the pandemic but if you look at flying there are A lot of people flying this year, more than 4 million, which is definitely more than pre-pandemic. It's setting a new record for July 4th. And that's even though prices, ticket
10: prices, are up 40, in some cases, 50 percent. Okay, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning, and this is not exactly feel comforting, I've got to say. So help me out here. How are things going at the airports this weekend? What are people seeing Um, Okay. Uh, Brace
14: yourself, Juana. It's been a rough couple of weeks. There's a lot of reasons. There's been bad weather. There aren't enough air traffic controllers. United in particular had huge problems last week and United blamed the air traffic controller shortage. The flight attendants union blamed United for having some mismanagement. I'll, I'll, I'll just a side note here. The CEO had to apologize last week for flying a private jet on a week where the airline had canceled 3,000 flights. But that was last week. You wanna know about today and tomorrow. So unfortunately, it's still a little bit dicey newark which was a united hub is really struggling today there were some severe storms predicted which caused delays in the southeast dallas denver um, news you can use here uh, advice from AAA is if you can get by with just a carry-on and not checking a bag do that because then you're more flexible if you do have delays or cancellations
10: okay and what about the roads what can drivers expect
14: so gas prices are down slightly from last week Congestion-wise, most of the traffic is behind us, but if you're driving through a major city, you might want to wait until a little later in the evening today or, you know, settle in and get ready to listen to a lot of NPR. (laughs) Um, And then last note here, holidays are very dangerous times to drive and July 4th is particularly bad for drunk drivers. So one note from your friendly car reporter, y'all, please do stay safe
10: out there. Good advice for everyone. Thanks, Camila. Thank you. That's NPR's Camila Domenoski. It's one of the biggest condiment controversies of our time. Should ketchup be kept in the cupboard or in the fridge? Heinz set the internet abuzz recently when their UK branch tweeted their belief that ketchup is a dish best served cold. And of course, the Twitterverse did its thing with passionate defenders of both cold and room temp ketchup weighing in. And since every 4th of July, hundreds of millions of hot dogs and hamburgers are consumed, we wanted to... and. I'm really sorry about this one, catch up with someone familiar with the science behind this debate.
15: I'm Dr. Mel Kramer, and personally, I keep ketchup as well as mustard in the refrigerator.
10: Me too. Kramer, who heads a food safety consulting firm in Florida, says to exercise caution with long-term ketchup storage, but...
15: If you're saying a couple of days, the answer would probably be categorically no. If you're talking about 6, 8, 10, 12 months, there is a good possibility that these microorganisms could get inside the ketchup when you open and close it, and you have the risk of potentially having mold. You have a higher probability of spoilage microorganisms, can have an off-taste and off-flavor and off-colors, too.
10: And Kramer adds that the longer someone keeps ketchup on the shelf, the more likely it is to lose nutritional value, though that's not an issue for
15: most. Ketchup is a condiment. It certainly is not something that one would have to use as a food for their daily dietary intake.
10: Still, even if the science is settled, the public debate is far from over. Even our own All Things Considered staff came down on both sides. The ketchup goes in the fridge, man.
15: I no
16: longer put it in a refrigerator.
2: I keep it in the fridge. Once I open something, it goes in the
16: fridge. I've never seen ketchup kept in the refrigerator at a restaurant. So I keep my bottles of ketchup and packets of ketchup in a cupboard.
10: The ketchup is always kept in the fridge. Of course, you can always just stick with mustard. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, weather unbecoming of a holiday today. Steady rain, some thunderstorms until about 6 tonight. After that, it should be dry with clouds, maybe some fog tonight. Tomorrow should start up with clouds, then sunshine moving in, warming all the way to the mid-80s. 69 degrees now at 421.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio, and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
18: And I'm Ari Shapiro. How have humans shaped the planet we live on? The better question might be, is there any way humans haven't shaped the planet?
19: Humans are a cosmopolitan species. And wherever we go, we bring other species with us these biological invasions cost the global economy 1.4
18: trillion dollars a year and after in a new six-part series on pbs called human footprint biologist and princeton university professor shane campbell staton travels the world to wrap his brain around the impact of our species on earth welcome to all things considered Thank you so much for having me. When I heard about this series, my first thought was, how do you tell the story of human impact on the planet without making it relentlessly bleak and depressing? And you managed to do it without glossing over the reality that Earth faces. So how did you pull that off?
20: Well, you know, when people think about our impact on the planet, I think it's easy to sort of see us as the villains of the story. But the reality is, it's more complicated than that. You know, we are a complicated species. Our culture is complicated, our history is complicated, and our impact on the planet is complicated. There are bad things, there are also good things. There are things that are none of of those two. There's things that are just goofy, or there are things that are just weird, and we explore all of those different impacts.
18: One particularly charming episode of the show is about dogs. What was your biggest takeaway from reporting that out, apart from how cute they are?
20: Yeah, so dogs are adorable. Uh, I myself own a Great Dane. Mm-hmm. And you know when we think about dogs, I think a lot of times we have a tendency to focus on how we have changed them. But dogs have also changed us as well. In um, one way. So for instance, in terms of if we look at you know, human history. You know, dogs have helped us to colonize some of the most extreme environments on the planet. Mm. Um, I got to go to uh, the Arctic Circle and spend time uh, with this uh, young Inuit dog sled trainer named Devin. Yeah, he's a young kid, about maybe 21 years old.
21: I used to watch videos on YouTube of Greenland mushers. You know, I tried to do how they did it.
20: You learned how how to, how to run a sled dog team from YouTube? <laughs> well, not entirely, but it was part of it, yeah. I Speaking with Devin, friends. you know, we went out and um, we went on a, a seal hunt and, you know, talking with him and spending time with his dogs, I realized that our connection with dogs is something that runs really deep. In this case, you're talking about a thousand years deep. One day we saw these wolves, and they were faster, they had better
21: smell than us, you know, they could hear better than us. So we're like, oh, why don't we
20: befriend this animal? And that connection helped us as a species to conquer one of the most extreme environments on the planet. I've never been any place where I was so absolutely sure if left to my own devices, I would die like 100% for sure die. Yeah, And these dogs have been key uh, to uh, surviving in such an extreme environment.
18: As you were producing this series, were there things that surprised you or was it pretty much sorta of like, yeah, I knew about that?
20: You know, as somebody who studies, like I spend my life thinking about, you know, the lasting biological impacts of humans but i realized that that expertise is very narrow in terms of the scope of our human impact going on this journey i think one of the most incredible things was like speaking with people who weren't biologists speaking with fishermen speaking with farmers speaking with like local experts who you know made me realize exactly how intertwined we are with the natural world in all these crazy and unexpected
18: ways. Hmm. Can you tell us about one particular surprise where you were like, whoa, I thought I knew this, but didn't realize that was the state of things?
20: The most intense example I can think of is, so in the last episode of the series, we explore the footprint of cotton.
19: From the shores of an ancient ocean, to the DNA in my cells today. Cotton is the thread connecting so much in the South. By 1860, cotton alone represented half of all US exports and it was reshaping the world in profound ways.
20: You know, I am an African-American. I was raised in the South, uh, in South Carolina. You know, now I'm a biologist who, you know, studies human-induced changes. Obviously, domestication is, you know, is a core part of our sort of current biological footprint. And going into that episode, coming from both of those backgrounds, it's like, you know, I've got a pretty good feel for what this episode is gonna be about. But then along the way, it just fundamentally changed. You know, I met with a biologist we met in Alabama, um, a biologist named uh, Craig McClain, and you know, we were standing on these deposits that form the basis of the, the Black Belt that runs through uh, the Deep South.
18: It's really shocking. He maps these ancient geological formations onto present-day Democratic-Republican divides, health outcomes, things that are so present in our lives right now that are a reflection of where oceans were hundreds of millions of years ago.
20: Exactly. And, you know, it's something that you'd never think about, you'd never expect. It's It's a time frame, arc of history, that just seems so impossible, yet there it is right in front of your face. You know, which counties across the South go Democrat, which go Republican, instances of obesity. All of these things, they trace an ancient coastline that has not existed for a hundred million years.
18: You know, in the first episode, somebody talking about invasive species says, we made the problem, we have to fix it with all the changes that you document the idea of fixing it or undoing it seems totally unrealistic we're not going to return to some kind of like garden of eden prelapsarian state so Mm. what do you think our goal should actually be not specifically with invasive species just broadly when we look at the human impact on the world
20: i think at this point our goal should be one understanding exactly what this impact is. Understanding that our decisions, be they intentional or unintentional, are going to have a really important impact on the world around us. I think the second thing is, you know, a conversation needs to happen, you know, in terms of what we want this planet to be. The earth is fundamentally different and it's not going to go back, especially as long as we're around. So what that means is that the future is literally what we make it and we need to decide what we want that future to be.
18: Biologist and Princeton University professor Shane Campbell-Staten is the host of the new series Human Footprint on PBS. Thank you so much.
20: Thank you so much for having me.
10: This is NPR News.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com.
11: I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story.
13: That's why I love
11: NPR's Politics Beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to
22: this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more
3: at WBUR.org slash cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Police in Philadelphia say five people are dead, two children are injured in a mass shooting. All of the victims were shot multiple times after a gunman wearing a bulletproof vest opened fire last night. Two people are in custody, including the suspected shooter. Meanwhile, it's been one year since a mass shooting at a July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois, claimed the lives of seven people. Today, the community is remembering those who were lost and 48 others who were injured. At a ceremony at City Hall, Reverend Quincy Worthington says the community is still wounded from the tragedy.
4: It'll heal because we will gather to tend to each other's wounds, to wash away the rot of apathy and to clear the stink of fatalism, of believing that this is the way the world just is or that this is the way it has to be but he
3: says the community will heal. This week's Texas law enforcement officials at the southern border recovered the bodies of four migrants, one of them an infant. Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa has more.
1: A woman and baby girl were found unresponsive in the Rio Grande on Saturday near Eagle Pass on the Texas-Mexico border, according to a statement from a Texas border official. Two more unidentified bodies were recovered from the Rio Grande earlier this week. As migrant crossings continue to increase in the region, Eagle Pass Fire Department Chief Manuel Melo told the Washington Examiner last month he hopes the floating barrier ordered to be deployed just after the July 4th holiday by Texas Governor Greg Abbott will not become quote, an obstacle in rescue or recovery operations in the Rio Grande, adding that he believes the Boyce system may help deter some. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen, Texas.
3: Wall Street is closed today in observance of the July 4th holiday. U.S. futures contracts trading lower earlier today.
0: This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some nasty weather is hovering over the Boston area at this hour, and that's putting a damper on some July 4th festivities. State police and officials with the Boston Pops have asked people who've shown up at the Esplanade on the Charles River for the annual concert and fireworks show to leave the area. WBUR's Solon Kelleher is there. Solon, I understand this is not an evacuation order, so what are officials telling people there?
9: That's right. For people who are already in the concert area, they are asking that people evacuate, but it is not a mandate. Uh, For people who are showing up, and there are still people showing up despite the announcements that have been made, uh, they are turning people away at the gate.
0: They're turning them away at the gate, and for those who are leaving, and you can tell us if there are many who are taking off, will they be allowed back in eventually?
9: They will. The plan is to let people back in. The kind of phrase I've been hearing is uh, when it's safe to do so. Uh, that started earlier in the day, they they said 4.30, and then it kind of moved to 5, and now we're looking at possibly five, 5.30 or later.
0: They just but, have to go through security once again, is that right? That's right. And you were going to say something else there?
9: Yes, well, uh, the, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Can, I'm, the,
0: yeah, so the people who are taking off, where are they going? If they're being asked to seek shelter, is there shelter available?
9: That's right. I heard some people were going to the Prue. Other people went to Cheers, which is open, and uh, Cheers bar. Uh, a few other people are we yeah, at Cheers Bar. Um, people are walking around uh, Marlborough Street, Newbury Street. Plenty of people are hanging out in driveways and under balconies uh, just nearby surro Drive.
0: Have uh, officials say whether they expect the concert to begin as planned at eight o'clock and then the fireworks at ten thirty?
9: That's right. There has been no word on any postponement or cancellation. In fact, people, um, whether it's officials from the BSO, uh, state police, or just uh, people who are here to attend the concert or see the fireworks, everybody's optimistic uh, that the show will continue as planned. And uh, especially people who are showing up now are, are uh, kind of I think they might have had uh, heard the forecast knowing that it's going to pass by relatively soon. Good.
0: And we'll get the forecast in uh, just a few minutes. WBR Solon Kelleher at the Hatch Shell in Boston. Thank you. Thank you. As Solon said, fans have been lining up to get into tonight's Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular just in, in the past few hours, but all day today as well. Brighton resident James R. Barnes was among the first in line to snag a seat right in front of the Hatch Shell. He got there yesterday
8: at between 1.30 and 2.30 here yesterday afternoon. I survived in the pouring rain overnight I'm a survivor, so I survived it.
0: Just a few more hours for him to survive the weather. The Boston Pops Concert is, as we said, scheduled to kick off at 8. The 30-minute fireworks show starts at 10.30 tonight. The MBTA is running on a weekday schedule this afternoon and will be free to ride after 9.30 tonight. That's to help ease the crowds after the concert and fireworks display. The Pops Concert on the Hatch Shell is scheduled for 8 p.m. again. Fireworks at 10.30. Most of Storow Drive near the hatch Shell remains closed all day today. Briefly in the forecast, rain, windy, messy until about 6 tonight, then things calming down after that. Tomorrow, gray to start. Sunshine breaks through eventually, should reach the mid-80s. It's
17: 4.36. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the estate of Joan B. Crock whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moen, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen.
3: This
10: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. One year ago, a gunman opened fire at a July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois. Seven people died and nearly 50 others were injured. And today, people in the community north of Chicago honored those who died and those that were wounded in the attack. We're joined now by reporter Michael Puente of member station WBEZ. Hi there.
1: Hello there, Juana.
10: Michael, remind us briefly, if you can, what happened one year ago
1: in Highland Park? Well, it was a big 4th of July daytime parade. It had been held in this community for years and years, and is just your typical parade that happens in so many cities around the country on a holiday as bands and floats and people march by. That's when the gunfire began. A gunman with an assault-style rifle had positioned himself on a rooftop along the parade route and began shooting 80 times, in fact. People fled in every direction as the bullets flew. And in the chaos that ensued, the gunman slipped away but was caught by police later.
10: Let's turn now to today. How did residents of Highland Park and people gathered there remember what happened one year ago?
1: Well, officials did not hold the parade today, but there was a remembrance and a community walk. It started as each of the victims' names were read out loud in a ceremony near City Hall. The seven who were killed and more than 40 others were injured. Then there was a, mo- a minute of silence, and that was followed by a walk to a local park, which passed the very area where this happened a year ago. I spoke with one marcher, Melissa Lee Litowitz.
23: You hear about these, you know,
6: horrible shootings happening, you hear about these horrible tragedies and you talk about them and you feel for them but there's really nothing like having it affect your own community, your own friends, your own family and so I just wanted to show up for the community on behalf of myself and people who I know would like to be here but couldn't be here today.
1: And there was many people from young to senior citizens all walking around dressed in red, white, and blue. The parade was replaced by a picnic. There were burgers and music and people relaxing. It almost felt like a normal 4th of July holiday.
10: Almost normal. And how has the community responded to the shooting over the past year?
1: Well, among the speakers today was the local mayor, Nancy Rotering, who said the community needs to continue to work to bring about change.
24: As we remember the victims of the shooting, let us each commit to using the power of our voices to make meaningful change. Let us commit to continue working together to prevent future acts of terrorism, to promote mental health, to create safer communities.
1: Beyond the politics, residents here are just trying to get on from that day, but some say the 4th of July will never be the same, although they are trying, and today's community walk and picnic went a long way to bringing a sense of normalcy. Tonight, no fireworks, but a drone show.
10: Okay, and remind us if you can, what was the fallout of that shooting?
1: Owana, the alleged gunman who was 21 at the time remains in jail he's charged with murder and a litany of other charges the next court hearing is in september when a trial date could be set the alleged gunman's father also has some legal troubles. the suspect was 19 when he purchased a weapon and under illinois law his dad had to sponsor his son's firearm card but police had previously been called to their home multiple times the suspect had allegedly threatened to kill family members Prosecutors say the dad should have known his son was troubled and never signed off on a firearm owner's ID card. In terms of some legal changes put in place after the shooting, Highland Park already had an assault weapons ban for the city. But after the attack last year, the state legislature put in place a statewide assault weapons ban, which is being challenged in court.
10: That's Michael Puente of member station WBEZ reporting from Highland Park, Illinois. Thank you. Thank you, Juana. When you think about the seat of United States government, you might think Washington, D.C., maybe Philadelphia, if you remember early American history. But in the first days under the new U.S. Constitution, the government was based in New York City. As NPR's Jennifer Venasco reports, a new play shows it didn't go all that smoothly. The Federal Hall National Memorial
24: standing on Wall Street today isn't the original Federal Hall. That one was torn down in
15: 1812. And sold for scrap.
24: Ken Bolling is a historian. He says the building there now was built as a customs house, but the site is still a really important place.
15: This was where the freedom of press trial of John Zenger was held.
24: That trial established that journalists could not be convicted of libel if they told the truth. Also on that site, it's where President George Washington gave his first inaugural address, Congress had its first important debate about slavery, and the Bill of Rights was drafted.
2: The First Amendment guarantees the freedom of expression.
24: That's from a play, The Democracy Project, that's now running in the rotunda of Federal Hall. It's about those big things that happened, but it's really more a meditation about who we are as a country and where we come from. I want people to leave asking, why didn't I know this? Why do I believe this? Why haven't I learned real history? Why have I just assumed what being taught is true? That's one of a handful of leading playwrights who took on this challenge, Among them, Bruce Norris, who's won a Pulitzer Prize and a Tony Award, Michael R. Jackson, he's won a Pulitzer and a Tony too, and also... I'm Larissa Fasthorse. She's a winner of what's known as the MacArthur Genius Grant. The group met again and again and again for about six years. It was a long process. Festor says they were trying to write one script altogether, but the group is opinionated. They came from different backgrounds. We're, you know, Native American and black and white and female and male. And the history they're trying to tell is complicated. For example, George Washington. People are talking about his teeth and
3: his dentures bothering him. Well, then we found out, like, his dentures were made from teeth from his slaves. You know, like, that's horrible. I mean, they say, well, he did pay for them. Federal
24: Hall is also where the United States signed its first treaty with Native Americans under the new Constitution. Alexander McGilveray was the chief of the Creeks at the time, the late 1700s. Here, in a scene imagined by Fast Horse, he's talking to Ona Judge, an enslaved woman. McGilvery says George Washington is going to be overthrown.
1: Overthrow. No more America. No more threats. No more treaties. No more Washington.
25: No more wars. No
24: more slavery. Well,
26: just because the Americans are gone doesn't mean my plantation will run itself.
24: Alexander McGillivray, Native American leader of the Creek Nation. Yeah, in real life, he was a plantation owner. He enslaved black people. The play says people you think would be allies don't always have the same goals.
10: Then or now. But we still need to talk to each other. I think that right now we're in such a fraught time that we're just backing into our corners, and that's not what democracy is. That's the play's co-director, Ty Thompson. You know, democracy is that we have to come to the table and talk. And we have to come to the table and, like, try to make something work. That's what democracy is. And not just sitting in our corners and saying, no, me, 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 I, I, I. It's about we, we, we. And it's not easy.
27: Democracy, democracy.
24: song about how yes this democracy project it is messy it's not an easy story because our history it's not easy either jennifer Venasco, npr news new york
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A growing worldwide legal movement to grant natural entities like forests and rivers the same legal rights as humans is catching on in the U.S. Indigenous-led campaigns to recognize the legal rights of wild rice and salmon are setting the stage for a nascent movement to protect the Mississippi River, Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco of the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk reports.
25: The Mississippi River flows through 10 states and spans over 2,300 miles, from its headwaters in northern Minnesota down to New Orleans, where or it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. Water is life.
27: Water is life.
25: On this day, a group of environmentalists chant as they cross the river, marching on a bridge that connects the Quad Cities, four towns in Illinois and Iowa that border the Mississippi. They say the river is alive.
18: Okay,
5: the river have rights just like just like human rights. Our nature have rights, and it's up to us to preserve these rights.
25: That's Glenda Guster from Davenport, Iowa. She and about 80 others joined the Walk for River Rights held by the Great Plains Action Society. Sakawa Snobis is the founder of the Indigenous Rights Organization. She says the group's goal is to build a coalition of people who will work to create a legal framework that protects the river.
10: The earth is really suffering. And rights of nature would basically give personhood to the river. And it would allow us to have more power to keep it safe.
25: The idea is that natural entities like rivers, trees or wildlife have the same rights as humans. Companies could be taken to court for damaging the river or its ecosystem. That's exactly what happened in Tamaqua, a small town in Pennsylvania about 90 miles northwest of Philadelphia. Thomas Lindsay is a senior attorney at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights and drafted the document to get rights for the small borough.
28: It may be a radical concept, or it was 20 years ago, but we're rapidly coming to a place where without
18: this kind of new system of environmental law, that we're all kind of done.
25: Ultimately, locals were able to stop sewage sludge from being dumped in Tamaqua using the new ordinance. Lindsay was also a consultant for the Ecuadorian government in 2008 when it drafted its new constitution, the first in the world to ratify the rights of nature.
18: The work has spread to other countries and in the U.S. to about over three dozen municipalities at this point.
25: Just a few months ago in April, the city of Seattle settled a case with the Sox Seattle Indian tribe over the claim that salmon had the right to spawn, among other rights. But there are limitations, according to University of Virginia law professor Michael Livermore, who has studied the rights of nature movement.
15: Without a notion of how to actually define the interests that are affected and how to compare them against each other, the, the idea of nature's rights is just extraordinarily
25: indeterminate. And some states like Idaho, Florida, and Ohio have taken steps to ban the possibility that nature or ecosystems can have legal standing. That type of opposition doesn't deter Lance Foster. He's a member of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska and says the success of rights of nature around the world got his tribe and others thinking, why not us? And we wondered why hasn't the big rivers, the Missouri River and Mississippi River, have those rights? So the tribe created a resolution calling for the rights of the Missouri River to be recognized. They hope to use it to challenge industrial-scale agriculture and deep mining operations. Boster says, if corporations get legal rights in the U.S., why shouldn't rivers? For NPR News, I'm Juan Pablo Ramírez Franco in the Quad Cities.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Independence Day. And it is a rainy, windy, overall muggy and messy one. Should have uh, rain until about 6 o'clock tonight, then things should calm down after that. Lots of clouds around overnight tonight, lows should be in the mid-60s. For tomorrow, clouds early, some sunshine moving through later on. Should still be sticky, feeling hotter, warming to the mid-80s. It is 69 degrees in Boston now at 449.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected, Comcast Business powering possibilities. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. Ten years ago, U.S. intelligence contractor Edward Snowden stunned the world. He revealed government officials
7: were surveilling private citizens around the globe.
29: The greatest fear that I have regarding the outcome for America of these disclosures is that nothing will change.
7: A decade later, has anything changed about government surveillance? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station
10: this is All Things Considered from NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. The pine nut is a beloved ingredient in Mediterranean cuisine. Think pesto, hummus, or stuffed eggplant. In Lebanon, its export is so valuable it's called white gold. But an invasive species of bug is killing off the harvest. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports.
30: Amid the tranquility of a forest of stone pines in Lebanon, I watch as a group of men climb up into the trees. Wow. They start off on ladders, but the ladders only go less than halfway up the tree. And then they just climb up. There's no harnesses. It's amazing to watch. There's no hesitation. They speed up this vertical trunk. One guy, strong and skinny, climbs nearly a hundred feet, bits of bark falling away from under his trainers. In the canopy, he uses a long metal pole to knock pine cones to the ground. The cones are collected into sacks and then poured into buckets to be taken away. Elias Naime, the head of the union of stone pine growers, tells me some 70,000 families rely on the pine nut industry. Stone pines cover many of Lebanon's mountain ranges and provide essential income for rural communities. Naime says pine nuts were also an important export, bringing in some 150 million dollars a year. But these days, Naime tells me through an interpreter, farmers can't harvest enough pines even for domestic demand.
18: Now, in Lebanon, we are importing pine seeds.
30: The cause is an invasive species of insect called the Western conifer seed bug, or Leptoglossus orientalis. Measuring around two centimeters, it sucks out the milky white nuts inside the cones. Scientists believe it arrived in Lebanon over a decade ago, and then spread and spread until it seemed to affect every forest. Naime picks up a pine cone from the forest floor.
27: This cone, when it was still a
1: bud, the leptoglossus came at it and sucked at the
18: bud. So now, this cone you see in front of you, it has no pine seeds inside it. It's just wood. There is no economic value uh, whatsoever.
30: Most of the cones around us are desiccated and shrunken. It's quite hard to find one that's
27: actually okay. This is half-half, but maybe you will also have it also help.
30: Naima believes the only solution is insecticides. He says in past years, the government used military helicopters to spray insecticides on some parts of the forest. But then, in 2019, the country was plunged into a crippling economic crisis and the practice stopped.
27: No more
18: spraying occurred. And the industry has been deteriorating ever since.
30: A spokesperson in Lebanon's Ministry of Agriculture told us they don't have the money for the insecticides and beekeeping communities say they harm their bees. Nabil Nemer, an entomologist at Lebanon's Kaslik University, explains the insecticides also kill other insects.
19: To use uh, the helicopter spraying, it is more dangerous to the ecosystem than, for example, uh, uh, leaving the insect in in the ecosystem.
30: One proposal would be to use drones that just spray individual pine trees specifically. But Lebanon doesn't have enough drones or operators. Maybe the best solution, Nimr says, is to try to keep the trees healthy by still pruning them and thinning forests and wait for a natural predator to take hold. A parasite is now starting to have some effect on the bug, but to control the population could take years, maybe even decades. And Elias Naime from the Pine Growers Union says time is exactly what those that rely on the pine industry don't have.
27: There is
18: total hopelessness. So many families are resorting to having to sell their land, which has no more economic value to them.
30: He understands the concerns for the ecosystem, but he says without a fast solution, the trees are at risk of being cut down as landowners clear them for other ways to make a living, like to make space for new crops. He talks to me on the flat roof of his home, where piles of pine cones are drying in the sun, making a crackling sound. The pine nuts are separated from the cones, and then in a small processing plant, they're fed through a series of machines that crack the hard shells and separate them from the white pine nuts that come pouring out into baskets. They're worth between $50 and $80 for a couple of pounds. Here it is, the the pine nuts have been threshed, left their shells behind, and all that's coming out now is white gold they gathered up and packed, a traditional harvest with an uncertain future.
10: Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Saibir, Lebanon. This past Sunday, the world lost a titan in the field of breast cancer research and advocacy. Renowned surgeon Susan Love has died after a recurrence of leukemia. She began her career at a time when women were discouraged from pursuing medicine in the first place, as she told makers for their YouTube channel.
6: In fact, my pre-med advisor said to me that if I went to medical school, I would be killing some boy because he would have to go to Vietnam. And you're just going to get the education and then you're going to stay home and have babies and it'll be totally wasted.
10: But as she told Sheila Kuhl of the talk show, Get Used To It, Dr. Love found strength in standing out. You're never going to be part of the old boys club.
6: So it really freed you up. It means you can
10: speak the truth. You can do what's right. Dr. Love fought to empower patients, and to that end, she published Dr. Susan Love's Breast Book. It's widely considered a critical resource for patients with breast cancer. It was
6: the first book that actually explained the science doctors hated it actually making the patient a participant in the process was very new
31: she was not what the male medical establishment was ready for and i think the more she got Push back the harder she pushed.
10: Journalist Karen Stabiner spent more than a year shadowing Dr. Love for her 1997 book, To Dance with the Devil, The New War on Breast Cancer. Stabiner says that despite Dr. Love's fierce fight against the status quo in medicine, she always brought a deeply human touch in her practice. She was the most genuinely empathic doctor I think I've ever met.
31: She had a supply of tape recorders And when she went in to see a new patient, she would hand them the tape recorder and a tape and say, listen, tape this consultation. And when you go home and your friends and family start driving you crazy, asking the same questions over and over, give them the tape and go to the movies. And that was her way of saying, you don't have to become the capital P patient. You are a woman who has breast cancer, and you don't have to be living that 24-7. And that, I think, humanized the whole thing.
10: Dr. Susan Love died July second, twenty 2023. She was 75 years old.
17: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station, And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Happy Independence Day. It is wet out there. Showers and thunderstorms should stick around for about another hour or so. And then things dry up by 7 tonight. We could even see some brightening skies, maybe a bit of sunshine in a few spots. Overnight falling to the mid-60s, then gradually turning sunny tomorrow in the mid-80s.
7: I'm education reporter Carrie Young and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR Boston's NPR news station.
0: Rain this afternoon prompted state police to ask spectators on the esplanade waiting for the Boston Pops festivities to seek shelter But they're apparently ready to reopen the gates and let people find a soggy place to sit for the concert and fireworks. Today is Tuesday, the 4th of July. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. As Kabul fell to the Taliban in 2021, a teenager was separated from his family at the airport and wound up on a plane without them. He's been in the U.S. ever since, alone. Gun violence has marred the holiday in many big cities, but early data suggests the overall murder rate in the U.S. may be going down. And weird weather abounds. There is a lot of summer heat, thunderstorms, but at a ski resort in Denver, there's snow on the ground.
32: I mean, it's kind of just, Oh, my God, like a dream. (laughs) I don't know,
0: it's a dream, seriously. Skiing in July, coming up, it's 5.01.
28: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. What appear to be random acts of violence are again coming over the 4th of July holiday period. Five people were killed by gunmen in Philadelphia last night. In Fort Worth, Texas, another overnight shooting incident left three people dead there and several others wounded. Remember
26: station KERA, Christopher
28: Connolly reports people were gathered for a block party.
26: The shooting started just before midnight. Shots were fired into a crowd of people in the Lake Como neighborhood on Fort Worth's west side, where the annual Como Fest block party is held. Fort Worth police responding to the scene found people fleeing and said several victims were taken to the hospital by ambulance and in private vehicles. One person was pronounced dead at the scene. Police say one of the victims was a child. The department did not say who or how many people fired the shots or why. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Connolly in Dallas. President
28: Joe Biden marked the 4th of July holiday today by thanking teachers gathered for a conference with the National Education Association. The president talking about working to curb a national teacher shortage and also criticizing lawmakers for failing to pass additional gun reform legislation that would keep schools safe, saying that responsibility should not fall on teachers.
29: Arming teachers is not the answer. Banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, extensive background
28: checks, they're part of the answer. Biden said his administration will also work to provide as much support to teachers as it can moving forward. Hotel workers in downtown Los Angeles are on strike for a third day, as NPR's Andrea Shue reports they're fighting for a new contract that addresses the high cost of living in Southern California. <laughs>
22: Housekeepers, bellhops, servers, dishwashers, and front desk staff are among the thousands of hotel workers who have been on strike since Sunday. They forced hotels to bring in backup staff and cut back on things like food and beverage services. The hospitality union Unite Here is calling for an immediate $5 an hour raise, as well as a new surcharge on hotel guests to help employees with housing needs. Maria Hernandez is an organizer with the union.
11: Nobody can survive on what the the wages that people are making right now. It's really, really hard to stay housed
22: here in Los Angeles. A coalition of hotels has offered a 10 percent raise over the next year and more after that, but opposes the surcharge for the housing fund. Andrea and NPR News. Millions
28: of Americans will be celebrating the Independence Day holiday today with typical parades, parties and fireworks. The annual Fourth of July festivities taking place across the country despite threats of bad weather in some parts of the nation, including high heat in many areas of the South. The group Chicago is headlining this year's Capital Fourth celebration in Washington will be broadcast on PBS tonight starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Police say stormy weather forced them to close off an area near the Shell in Boston about an hour ago. People were not ordered to evacuate, but they were being advised to. Thousands have gathered on the Esplanade for tonight's Boston Pops concert and fireworks later on tonight. WBUR's Solon Kelleher is near the Shell right now. Hi, Solon. Hi, Lisa. Any updates yet as uh, to when officials might reopen the area uh, for those who are attending the concert, especially for those who have left um, and heeding the warning and are coming back?
9: That's right. Uh, The Massachusetts State Police, uh, just a few moments ago, right before five o'clock, they tweeted out that they will be reopening the security checkpoint into the Esplanade at 5 p.m., so four minutes ago. Uh, But so far i'm, I'm out on newberry street where many people are uh walking around and that that's not or that, that's uh, not common knowledge for these people i'm sure the, the word will spread pretty quickly
0: that they better get back there if they want to get a seat
9: and uh, talking with people over the last few hours uh, no, uh plenty of these people knew that they were going to be going back they just didn't know exactly when um, right now, the sun is actually poking out of the clouds, so um, people are kind of—they uh, have a kick in their step as they're heading <laughs> back towards the Esplanade.
0: And by the way, it's so hard to get a seat there. Um, did they did they kind of set up their chairs? Do they are they guaranteed a spot?
9: <laughs> so people who were there this morning, and uh, as we heard earlier last hour, there were some people who were even there last night and you know, waited in the park throughout the, uh, throughout the evening to get that spot right when the gates opened at noon. People who laid down blankets, uh, put down their chairs, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a matter of uh, goodwill and respect that you uh, will you know, not take that spot if you're a newcomer. Um, the, the hope is that people will be able to go where they reserved their spot earlier in the day. That
0: is the hope. All right. Thank you so much. From the Esplanade, WBOR, uh Solon Kelleher, thanks again. Thank you, Lisa. So what can we expect for the rest of the late afternoon and evening? For answers to those questions, we turn now to WBR's meteorologist, Daniel Noyce. Daniel, uh, Solon said there that he's seeing a little bit of sunshine peeking through the clouds. What do you expect over the next couple of hours?
7: Yeah, Lisa. So I've seen some of these breaks coming out for the city of Boston, north and west of town too, where the rain is done. The back edge is coming through the city right now. So we're wrapping things up. It is still pouring for the south shore back down to Cape Cod where there's some lightning and thunder right now in the upper Cape right over the canal to P town. So this is going to sweep through the mid and outer Cape in the next, I'd say about hour and a half. But uh, for Boston and the city, we are done. I do anticipate still a lot of clouds around, but these breaks that do develop from time to time and we should be dry no more. More issues here through the evening hours including for
0: fireworks. And what do you think about uh, tomorrow? Uh, A change in the weather?
7: Yeah I mean definitely much drier than today. Kind of a little bit of a pattern shift for a few days. Now it's gonna be warmer And it will still be humid, so highs tomorrow will be in the mid-80s for Boston. We'll probably touch 90 in some spots over the next few days north and west of the city, Um, most of us middle to upper 80s. So it gets hotter. There'll be way more sunshine, so it'll be a brighter stretch. With that much humidity, I do do still think there'll be a few like hit-or-miss thunderstorms, but really um, an isolated threat. Uh, nothing like we had today with steadier rain coming in, it would be like, you know, a quick thunderstorm, you duck inside, you come back out, the sun's back out sort of thing. And that's a much lower risk than the past few days than we've seen.
0: Daniel, what can you tell us about the flash flood uh, watch that has been in effect in parts of the region?
7: So we have three flash flood warnings right now that extend from really Providence east towards Plymouth. And these are in effect really for the next couple of hours until 7.15 actually for portions of Bristol and Plymouth County because, you know, so much heavy rain came down in a short period of time. It's been such a wet stretch. The ground just can't handle it. So localized flooding will result. We've had, you know, a few lightning strikes down there and have had reports of that. Uh, A section of Bedford Street and Fall River was impassable with cars stuck. So that's the situation down south for the next couple of hours. But the rain for those areas, too, will be wrapping up between, I'd say, about 630 and 730 as well. And then that flood threat will diminish over the evening hours in those areas.
0: Nice to have it all contained to one day. Too bad it's the 4th of July. I know. <laughs> At least it's looking better tomorrow and maybe for the rest of the week. is uh, Daniel Noyce, thanks so much. Thanks, Lisa. 68 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 509.
23: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss.
10: This is All Things Considered for NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. It's been nearly two years since some 80,000 Afghan refugees were airlifted out of Kabul on military aircraft as the Taliban closed in to take over the country. They're now trying to adjust to a new life in the United States, and they're facing hurdles ranging from finances to language difficulties and worrying about family members left behind. NPR's Tom Bowman and producer Lauren Hodges sat down with one of those refugees and bring us this story.
29: It's midday at Goodwin House, a retirement community just outside Washington. Residents stroll through the revolving door with packages. see you later. Some slowly move down the hallway, aided by walkers. Others chat with each other by the elevator, introducing their pets.
12: This is Sammy.
29: In the middle of all of this is a lean young man dressed in black with a trim beard. He could be mistaken for a visiting family member, but his family is 8,000 miles away and in danger. Tom nice. nice to to meet to meet you. We'll call him BH, which is using his initials because most of his family is still in Kabul, often forced to change addresses because they fear the new Taliban regime. His uncle worked for the Afghan and U.S. militaries, making the whole family suspect. B.H. remembers the last time he saw them, 10 of them, as they pressed through a desperate crowd at the Kabul airport, all trying to board planes as the Taliban took over the city.
21: And everyone was pushing each other and they didn't, you know, care about old people or children. Yeah, everyone was afraid. Were you afraid? Uh, Yes.
29: In the crush of thousands of terrified Afghans, B.H. was separated from his family and somehow he got through the gate, but the rest of the family was still outside.
21: I called them several times, but no one was answering because there was in the crowd and no one heard the phone ring. It's a dark day for me because I lost my old family, you know.
29: He soon found himself sitting on the floor of a massive C-130 aircraft packed with refugee families. He had only the clothes he wore and some IDs. The plane arrived in Doha, Qatar, the first leg of a flight to the U.S. There, he finally reached his mother on the phone back in Kabul.
21: She was crying. That's the only thing she did.
29: BH was just 17 and all alone. Next was a dizzying hopscotch west. Germany, where the refugees slept on cots in a massive airplane hangar. Washington Dulles Airport in Virginia. More cots inside a convention center then to an Air Force base in New Mexico for vetting and medical tests, spending two months talking with other Afghans.
21: Everybody in the camp had a relatives around in the U.S. and they say, hey, come, come to California, you know, it's a good place. And I say, I don't have any relatives here. Then I found out uh, about Virginia is, has a good uh, education system and that was my goal to achieve.
29: So, B.H. flew back to Dulles Airport in Virginia. The State Department offered counseling, help for jobs and education, and the refugees got three months' financial assistance. He got an apartment and enrolled in Alexandria City High School as a junior. He studied hard and worked, doing odd jobs, not able to socialize much. He noticed something different about his American classmates.
21: You know, there's a culture, just one family, two family members who work in the family and the rest of them just spending that money and have free times and have funds all the time. But here, everyone should work. You know, it's not a choice. You should work, you know, if you want to live here in this country.
29: A teacher found out he lived alone was financially strapped. The school staff reached out to Christ Church in Alexandria, whose parishioners have banded together to help the Afghan refugees. Melanie Gray is the church's director of outreach and mission.
32: He needed financial help, period. You know, he's going to school full-time, he's working full-time. He described to me, in this little time he has, he showers, eats, and studies.
29: Christ Church, along with other faith groups in the area, raises money to support the newly arrived Afghans. Most of that money goes to rental assistance. The church is helping more than 50 families, but B.H. especially stood out to them because he didn't have his family.
32: So imagining him here alone without a family, the burden, I believe, is extra heavy.
29: Grace's worrying about his relatives overseas was a huge weight on B.H.'s shoulders
32: the stressors of his family remaining in Afghanistan. I mean, he has sent me pictures of a brother who had been stabbed. And when I see that, I'm like, I can't imagine how you go to school the next day. (laughs) And yet he does.
29: BH got a job working the front desk at Goodwin House. He talks with his family frequently, sends him money when he can, and is looking for additional work. He picked up a scholarship from his high school to study computer programming at Northern Virginia Community College. It's a safe life, but he misses Kabul, the food, hanging out with his friends and playing soccer. But it's dangerous now, and he wonders if his family will ever get out.
21: All the time I'm worried about my family because they're in danger. They have no rights
29: here, no freedom of speech. Our Afghan girls can go to school. BH is luckier than most Afghans in the U.S., thousands of whom struggle with English and have only temporary work permits. His application for asylum was accepted, and he's on his way to becoming a permanent U.S. resident. B.H. walks to his apartment in Southern Towers, a massive complex just behind Goodwin House. It's home to many Afghans and other refugees who settled here years ago from Ethiopia and Eritrea. There's a cluster of people outside the towers, a woman wearing a hijab, a man in a long tunic shirt hopping off a shuttle bus.
21: Today's Eid, Muslims' uh, holiday, and in in this time, you know, in our countries, everyone is going to their relative' house and hang out with friends. It's it's a big celebration, you know.
29: Can you miss that? Yeah. As families greet each other outside, kids dart around the parking lot on scooters. we head through the lobby to the elevator. Where the hum of families in the lobby gives way to silence. We head up to BH's studio apartment on the 10th floor. can we take our shoes off? Uh, he invites us in and apologizes for the bags of laundry in the living room. Uh, so I, I collect all
21: clothes to go to, to laundry, you know, so. Well, this is all your
29: laundry? The only decoration is a massive photo of a beach and a vast stretch of sea, with mountains in the distance. He folds up his prayer rug, opens a window shade to an urban landscape of highway and apartment buildings.
17: Oh, wow. Look at your view. It's very nice. Yes, yeah, so you had so many people in your house, and now it's just you. Is that weird? Yeah. Is, I mean, what is it like?
21: Yeah, it's no choice for me, you know, and that's,
29: That's the thing, you know. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Alexandria, Virginia.
10: If you've been suffering under summer heat lately, perhaps you'd be interested to know that in the Rocky Mountains, people are still skiing. Lucas Brady-Woods with member station KUNC in Colorado reports on some rare July snow fun.
27: Yeah, Dimitri
8: it's sunny and nearly 70 degrees at the base of copper mountain resort about 90 minutes west of denver and somehow on a grassy green slope in the middle of a pine forest there's a big bright white pile of snow
11: i mean it's kind of
32: just Oh my God, like a dream. I don't know, it's a dream, seriously.
8: The elevation here is nearly 10,000 feet above sea level and it's a great hangout for snowboarders like Elisa Brykor.
31: This is what we love, it brings us all together. We get to meet up with our friends, hang out. Um, You don't even have to text anyone, everyone's just already here.
8: Everyone is about 50 people, who paid $25 each to slide around on a pile of snow roughly the size of a football field. It's been sculpted by big tractors to create shapes for skiers and snowboarders to fly off of and do tricks on. Jay Scott, who works for the resort, says it's been a while since they've been able to offer this.
25: A lot of people who have been here, you know, five or so years ago when we used to have it are stoked to have it back.
8: Riders have to hike back up when they get to the bottom, but nobody's complaining. I am wearing athletic shorts and a t-shirt, and we're skiing in July. Nate Sunderhues from Denver braved some heavy traffic to get here today. It's worth it because, um, man, the mountains are just so beautiful, and I just really enjoy being up here. Ski resorts typically close around Easter. When the resort opened up what they call the hike park last week, snow-hungry locals ate it up. George Searcy, a 13-year-old skier, is working on a trick called a three-swap.
10: This is a kind of a new trick to me and so um,
33: hopefully it only takes like eight attempts.
8: He and his little brother are wearing t-shirts and not worried about falling in the snow.
33: No, not really. Cold
32: is fun.
8: Low temperatures are forecast to be in the 40s here this week, so the snow won't last all summer. 34-year-old Colorado native Mark Lynn grew up competing in snowboard events and calls the sport his life.
29: It's been a cool day for me. I rode my bike this morning, skateboarded.
16: Now we're snowboarding, so kind of a Colorado trifecta.
8: For NPR News, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at Copper Mountain.
10: President Biden wants to see a strong and united NATO while Russia continues its war in Ukraine. The country of Sweden wants to join NATO, but their application is being blocked by Turkey. Well, tomorrow, the prime minister of Sweden meets with the president of the United States at the White House. Listen for that story tomorrow on Morning Edition. If you're not by your radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR
4: News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. The rain moves out over the next hour or so. Clouds overnight tonight relatively dry. Some cameos from the sunshine falling just about uh, to 67 degrees overnight tonight. Tomorrow we should start up with clouds, then sun moves in, warming all the way to the mid-80s. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on everything that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Britbox with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at Britbox.com/slash NPR. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Today is one of the top American holidays for eating. There's Thanksgiving, of course, but the 4th of July features some serious cookouts and the event that is the de facto Super Bowl of competitive eating. The Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. Mickey Sudo won the women's contest for the ninth time this morning. And this afternoon, after a rain and lightning delay. With 62 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes for his 16th win, I give you the number one ranked eater in the world. Joey Chestnut. Why these two do it? Well, they've got their reasons. But why we, as a society, celebrate all of this on U.S. Independence Day? Well, our producer Matt Ozug spoke to some experts on the subject of competitive eating.
16: Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I remember that I spent two years in the 2000s following competitive eating around the country and the world. You know, I saw some things that I can never forget, even if I wanted to. My name is Jason Fagoni, and I'm the author of *Horsemen of the Esophagus, Competitive Eating and the Big Fat American Dream. Most people are, are familiar with the Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest. That's the one that's broadcast every year on ESPN. But there's all kinds of other eating contests
29: Cheeseburger eating
16: champion of- for burgers, for uh, cakes, for cannolis,
5: during last year's French fries. French eating championship of the world!
16: Just the craziest, kind of wildest, most grotesque, nonsensical, you know, and kind of fun pageants that I'd ever had a chance to witness. One of the most intense experiences in my life was attending the Philadelphia Wing Bowl. The country's premier chicken wing eating contest. Fifteen to twenty thousand actual fans packed into a sports arena in Philadelphia at seven a.m. Then there's this whole other aspect of eating contests in Japan. Food
28: Metal Club.
16: They come with greatly expanded production values. There are you know lasers and explosions and uh, you know dramatic music. There's a lot more ingenuity in the kind of the structuring of the contest itself, whereas in America, the contests tend to be more just about sort of sheer volume. Competitive eating goes back centuries. It's not only an American thing.
34: We have record of a famous competitive eater going back to the 17th century. My name is Eric Grundhauser, and I am a writer and journalist. There was a farmer by the name of Nicholas Wood. Some of the impressive meals that Wood was known to have consumed included eating seven dozen rabbits in one sitting, entire pigs, 12 loaves of bread that had been soaked in ale. He passed out afterwards, but he made it. Wood earned a number of pretty incredible nicknames, the most exorbitant paunchmonger, Duke All Paunch, and the Kentish Tenterbelly. Unfortunately, His body was pretty well destroyed from all the eating. He had lost all but one of his teeth after trying to eat an entire mutton shoulder. Wood finally threw in the towel and said, I can't do this any longer.
16: There are a lot of different cultures that have kind of invented eating contests independently at different points in history. And for the first few hundred years after The American Revolution, eating contests were a regular feature at 4th of July celebrations. And then this started to change a little in the 1970s, uh, when Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs created a hot dog contest on the 4th of July. You know, the eaters in that era were were mostly big guys from Long Island, right? These are like classic kings of the backyard barbecue. And in the 1990s, these two brothers from New York uh, took over the Nathan's Famous accounts, George and Richard Shea, And in that age, everyone who was competing in the contest was kind of in on the joke. The eaters had silly nicknames. There was a guy named uh, Frank Large Della Rosa,
20: Dominic the Dogan Adecado,
16: Ed Cookie Jarvis,
20: Hungry Charles Hardy, Brooklyn, New York,
16: Eric Badlands Booker, who is is also a rapper and records competitive eating themed rap songs. (sighs) Somebody
20: say.
19: I have a
16: CD somewhere in, 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 in my box, I'm putting it to Child, And then in 2001, everything changed in an instant when this young Japanese guy named Takero Kobayashi came to America and competed in the Nathan's Hot Dog contest. Kobayashi was different from everyone who had come before him. You know, He wasn't a big man, he looked very healthy he didn't have any kind of a jokey nickname right and it turned out that he had been training for the contest as if it were a real sport part of kobayashi's innovation was that he came up with a completely new way to eat the hot dogs he separated the hot dog from the bun and then he snapped the hot dogs in half and then he would snap the bun in half dunk the bun in water and eat it this was an innovation akin to, you know, the Fosbury flop and the high jump. And the record at that point was 25 hot dogs in 12 minutes, which everybody thought was an enormous quantity. The contest starts, everything is going like normal. And then about three minutes in, everything kind of stops. And not only the other contestants, but the announcer, (laughs) they just start looking at Kobayashi with kind of their jaws open. Kobayashi had almost broken the world record and there was still nine minutes left to go.
29: Kid is incredible. A Total beating of the Americans. He he was like a conveyor belt. He was just putting them in two at a time.
16: And then he, he proceeded to 30, double the world record by the end of the 12 minutes.
27: the white flag. I kinda believe it. The new record, 50.
16: And then after that, everything changed because there started to be real money. Pretty soon, you know, ESPN was broadcasting the Hot Dog Contest it's live.
9: Amazing. What a crowd out here. Americans have all striped their visitors from abroad, celebrating the dream of independence once again on the corner of Surf and road. And with well,
16: that, that money came a whole new wave of competitors story. who, you know, like Kobayashi, were training. They were taking it seriously as a sport, and they weren't necessarily in on the joke anymore. They were really trying to win. Eating is one of the great psychic preoccupations of our species. It's right up there with sex and death. I mean, eating is this animal act that we all participate in to some degree, and this is the most animal version of it, but it's happening in an environment where there are there are safety rules. Uh, so in a sense, there, it's like this display of gluttony that has been kind of made safe for you to look at and think about. There's like this pane of safety glass between you and the danger. If you sort of zoom out and you think about, you know, what an eating contest symbolizes more broadly maybe, it does seem symbolic of the outsized American appetite for everything, not just for food, but for resources, power, money, you name it. It's kind of a Rorschach test for how people see us.
10: Jason Fogoni is the author of Horsemen of the Esophagus, Competitive Eating, and the Big Fat American Dream. This is NPR news.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. Mathworks.com/MOS.
3: live from npr news in washington i'm janine herbst in philadelphia police say a gunman armed with a rifle a pistol a bulletproof vest extra magazines and a police scanner shot and killed five people last night two children were wounded police chased the suspect for blocks as he fired at them police commissioner daniel outlaw we're confident that we have the individual responsible in custody however We do ask for your continued patience and cooperation, as I mentioned before, as we meticulously piece together the events
32: leading up to this heinous act.
3: She says it appears the shooter had no prior connection to the victims. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney.
4: I am frustrated and outraged that mass shootings like this continue to happen in communities across the United States. This country needs to reexamine its conscience and find out how to get guns out of dangerous people's hands.
3: He says Congress needs to act to solve the violence. Meanwhile, in Fort Worth, Texas, three people died. Eleven were wounded in a mass shooting there. Police are searching for that gunman. UPS and its employees are trying to reach an agreement on a new contract before a deadline tomorrow. Marlon Hyde with member station WABE reports tomorrow is a union-imposed deadline to avoid a work stoppage.
20: Union officials say negotiations have progressed, but there are still issues. UPS agreed to some policy changes, including ending a mandatory overtime policy for workers on their off days and adding Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a paid holiday. If the union does not agree to a new contract, the resulting strike of roughly 340,000 U.S. workers would be one of the most impactful work stoppages in U.S. history. It would disrupt the supply chain and affect the lives of millions who rely on the delivery giant. The last time UPS workers went on strike was over 25 years ago. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta.
0: Wall Street was closed today in observance of the 4th of July. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Things are getting back to normal now at the Hatch Shell in Boston, where people have been gathering all day long ahead of tonight's Boston Pops concert and fireworks show. Earlier this afternoon, people in and around the Hatch Shell were asked, not ordered, but asked to leave the area due to bad weather and potential thunderstorms. State police reopened the area about 5 o'clock. WBUR's Solon Kelleher is at the Hatch Shell and joins us live. Solon, how full is the area immediately in front of the hat shell now? And are, is, are there still people in line trying to enter?
9: Hi, Lisa. Yes. Uh, while the uh, security checkpoint itself doesn't have many people lined up in front of it, they, uh, the security has been able to keep up with the people coming in. I'm looking right now at the footbridge uh, of where Dartmouth Street is. And um, and there is just a stream of people coming. I think word has finally spread that the gates are reopened.
0: And so the people who are coming presumably were already there before and then took off when um, uh, police advised them to because of the weather. They're coming back in now. Is there any hesitancy? Are, are they hoping they'll get their seats back or expecting they will?
9: You know, people are here knowing that, that it's going to be raining. And I think there are people here arriving for the first time, too, and it's you know, knowing Bostonians, I don't think they care if they're going to be in the back of the concert. I actually have somebody here, Bob Lewis from Weymouth, Mass, who's here. And he's playing on staying thing outside the gate because he has a spot uh, where you can both hear the concert and also see the fireworks. Um, Bob, you knew that it was going to be raining here. What brought you out despite the
27: rain? Yeah, um, we're, uh, I have family in from Pennsylvania, so we wouldn't miss it for the world.
9: Okay, great.
0: Lisa? Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. We appreciate it. And we're glad your family, the weather is going to cooperate for your family as well as uh, the, the clouds will stick around, but the rain will move out. So as of now, Solon, uh, the concert will begin at eight o'clock as planned and then the fireworks at 1030. Is that right?
9: Everything's going according to plan.
0: All right. Thank you. That's Once right. again, Solon Kelleher from the Shell in Boston. We appreciate it, Solon. Thanks.
9: Thank you, Lisa.
0: So people from all over the country, Pennsylvania included, are making their way to the Esplanade in anticipation of the concert. For Beth Walters, it's her first visit to Boston. She came all the way from Columbia, South Carolina. She says that she was determined that she was going to be here on the 4th and decided that she really had to try to get to a Pops concert because she watched it as she was growing up. She would watch it on TV as they broadcast it nationwide. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for clouds to stick around. Temperatures should only make it to
35: about the mid-60s. The rest of the forecast is coming right up. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. The rain's tapering off, but we should be left with a muggy and soggy evening. A lot of clouds
0: around this evening and overnight. As we said, temperatures will be in the mid-60s overnight. Tomorrow, clouds in the morning, then sunshine breaks through. Should still be humid and feeling hotter, warming to the mid-80s. Thursday should be sunny and bright, mainly dry. Temperatures in the mid-80s again. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 536.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things
10: Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. This morning, Independence Day was ushered in by news of more mass shootings around the country. In Fort Worth last night, a shooting at a 4th of July celebration killed three people and injured eight. In Philadelphia, five people were killed in a shooting spree yesterday. The alleged shooter is in custody. Still, there may be some good news on the horizon. The overall national murder rate appears to be coming down. NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi joins us to talk about it. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Martin, let's start with what we've seen over the weekend going into the July 4th holiday. Is this a continuation of the kind of shooting that plagued this holiday last summer?
26: Well, you haven't seen anything quite as lethal as that terrible shooting last year at the 4th of July Parade in Highland Park, Illinois. You may recall that killed seven people and injured 48. But once again, what we're seeing here is people who are shooting in and around crowds. Uh, Besides those shootings you just mentioned, we also saw incidents over the weekend in Wichita and Tulsa. And then there was the gunfire at a block party in Baltimore, where 30 people were hit by gunfire, two of them killed. Uh, Here's the Baltimore mayor, Brandon Scott, at a press conference in the early hours of the morning after that uh, shooting early Sunday.
34: This was the reckless, cowardly act uh, that happened here and that has permanently uh, altered many lives. And I want those who are responsible to hear me, hear me very clearly. We will not stop until we find you, and we will find you.
10: Shootings jumped sharply during the pandemic. Does this mean that we're still in the middle of that surge?
26: Well, if we look specifically at murders, that's all criminal homicides, things may actually be getting better now. Official national statistics for murder take some time to compile, more than a year. But we can get a sense of the trend right now if we look at the cities that report their murder counts in near real time. And one person who has been doing this is a crime analyst named Jeff Asher. He's collecting murder data from 100 cities as they post them. We're talking about New York, LA, and smaller cities such as Omaha, Louisville. And in a new article on Substack, he He says that right now, if you look at those numbers, midway through the year, those cities have seen murder drop by 11%.
15: There's still six months to go. There's certainly a lot of uncertainty about what it means exactly, but the big sample points to a large decrease nationally so far.
10: So, Martin, how big a decrease does he think we might see in 2023 when we finally do get those national murder numbers?
26: Well, because his sample is of cities which tend to have more gun violence, uh, the statistical changes are more dramatic. Uh, There's more of a swing. Um, The national number may end up being something like a drop of maybe 7% in that ballpark. But even so, he says if that would be the final number, it would still be very significant.
15: Murder tends to go up and down by a couple of percentage points each year. If it does decline at the rate that it's at least suggestive of so far from big cities, it would be historically large.
10: And Martin, help us understand here, how do we square this apparent downward trend with all of this news of mass shootings in the last few days?
26: Mass shootings are terrible and they're very visible, but they account for just a small percentage of all murders. So what we might be seeing here is that the factors that drove up murders overall in 2020 and 2021 are now easing off, whatever those factors are. And there's a lot of argument about that. But, you know, we have people back in school, work is more constant, uh, police departments may have adapted to some new realities. But the one thing that doesn't seem to be dropping yet is what cops sometimes call casual gunplay. You might recall what the mayor of Baltimore said in that clip. He said that the shooting was reckless. Well, that kind of thing increased with the pandemic and it's not going away. The number of mass. Mass shootings where four more people are killed or wounded. The real-time numbers we have for that are not going down this year. And unfortunately, that's what we've been seeing over this 4th of July.
10: NPR's Martin Costi, thank you. You're welcome. French President Emmanuel Macron held a closed-door meeting with more than 200 mayors today. The mayors are pushing for tighter measures from the state after a wave of unrest has shaken the country. Today marks one week since the start of the turmoil, triggered by the death of a 17-year-old boy of North African descent who was shot by a police officer during a routine traffic stop. Rebecca Rossman visited one town just south of Paris, where people are still in shock after an attack on the mayor's home during the protests.
35: Backed by dozens of elected officials wearing blue, white and red sashes, Vincent Jambron, the 39-year-old conservative mayor of Les Les Roses, a quiet leafy South Paris suburb, told a crowd of hundreds he had just one thing to say to them. Thank you. Jean Brun went on to describe the events of this past weekend as a quote, new milestone of horror and disgrace. While he was working at the town hall late Saturday evening, rioters rammed a car into his home and then set the vehicle on fire. As his wife and two young children tried to escape, they were hit with fireworks. His wife ended up breaking her leg. One of his children was also hurt.
18: Il y a des habitants des quartiers sensibles qui vivent l'enfer tous les jours.
35: Speaking to NPR inside the town hall, Jean-Brun said he understands people are angry and that there are people living in certain areas going through hell every day. But this was not anger, he said. It was pure hatred. The incident is being investigated as an attempted assassination. 45,000 police have been deployed across the country and more than 3,000 people have been arrested in the last week. According to France's Interior Ministry, the average age of those arrested is only 17 years old. Some are as young as 12. Jean Bourne and other mayors are calling on the government to declare a state of emergency. While the violence has subsided in recent days, there are fears it may just be a temporary lull. In Les Les Roses, residents NPR spoke to seem to agree on two things. First, that people have the right to be outraged over 17-year-old Nahel's death. And second, that the unrest of the past week has officially crossed a line. We are shocked and outraged, says 41-year-old resident Marie Leroy. Leroy says she can understand the anger coming from the rioters And she believes there is a greater systemic issue tied to lack of opportunity and resources for working class youth. But it's time to restore order. French President Emmanuel Macron now faces a difficult balancing act to quell the violence while also addressing the underlying problems the riots have exposed. It's the latter that some worry will be swept under the rug.
20: It's the uh, successive policies of different governments who have succeeded, who have nothing to do to arrange all this.
35: Zach Rashidi is a 32-year-old insurance broker who has been living in Les Les Roses for about a year. Like the hell, he's of North African origin. He believes race played a role in the teenager's death. Rashidi condemns the recent violence, but says it's the result of successive governments who have done nothing over the years to address the issues facing the working class especially young minorities.
20: They
35: may put on some bandages, he says, but it's never enough to heal the wounds entirely. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossmann in Les Les France.
10: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The archivist of the United States does not usually have to deal with FBI raids of a former president's home. It's a prestigious job that oversees the preservation of more than 13 billion federal documents. But the newest national archivist recently had to put out a statement clarifying the rules around presidential records. Colleen Shogun is also the first woman to be appointed to the role. NPR's Tilda Wilson has more.
33: Colleen Shogan loves being surrounded by documents. The affable former political science professor is standing in her sunlit office next to the original copy of the joint resolution Congress passed to approve the 19th Amendment. This gave women the right to vote.
32: Yes, it brings a lot of personal meaning. Every time that I exercise my own right to vote, I think about this. Really, it, it is emblematic of the 80 years that it took to get to this
33: point. Shogun's job is to make sure that our nation's history is preserved through its documents. The 19th Amendment, the Constitution, even the forms your grandfather might have submitted to join the U.S. Army. Shogun grew up in a working-class neighborhood just outside Pittsburgh. She was a first-generation college student. She went on to work in the Senate. Then she was deputy director of the Congressional Research Service. In her free time, she read mystery novels.
32: Mystery novels, thrillers, that's what I enjoy. They're puzzles, and I like to solve puzzles. She wrote eight of them.
33: Shogun's Washington mystery novels are all set around D.C. landmarks, with titles like K Street Killing, Larceny in the Library, and Homicide in the House.
32: Yeah, no one would have wanted to look at my Google search at one point in time, especially when I wrote the one book that had poison in it. So I I was looking for very specific types of poison that would do certain things. And yeah, you would not want to have looked at my searches. You would think that there was something really strange going on.
33: I noticed crimson drops of blood on the thick carpeting of his office, His head was thrown back, and two vacant eyes stared at me. Senator Langsford wasn't giving me the cold shoulder. He was dead. That's a reading from Shogun's first book, Stabbing in the Senate. Her editor is Jennifer McCord.
7: She creates a world in each of her books. We have the Senate world, we have the House of Representatives, we have the library.
33: But McCord will not be working with Shogun for a while. Colleen Shogan is holding off on writing murder novels while she's working as archivist of the United States. The role is controversial enough without her killing off senators. Here she is being questioned by one.
26: You posted on Twitter bemoaning the dropping of mask requirements for children, including those under the age of five. Do you remember that post?
33: That's during a confirmation hearing with Senator Josh Hawley. The functions of the National Archives received nationwide attention last fall. Just three days after Shogun was officially nominated, the FBI raided former President Trump's home in search of documents they did not receive at the conclusion of his presidency. The result was intense scrutiny and politicization of the archivist's role.
3: There were
32: a lot of things that happened after my nomination concerning records with former President Trump, then Vice President Biden and Vice President Pence.
33: All of them had documents stored incorrectly at home that should have been in the archives. Colleen Shogun says we need our archives to understand our leaders and their legacies. Back at the National Archives, she points to another significant document, Gerald Ford's 1974 pardon of Richard Nixon.
32: We get focused a lot on our problems and misdeeds by our leaders, but here's an example of someone trying to really think not just for his immediate political future, but uh, what would be best for the country.
33: Documents tell the story of other divisive times and all that we can learn from them. Tilda Wilson, NPR News.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us on this holiday. Coming up in about 20 minutes, July 4th travel reaches a new high. That story and much more still to come. The rain around greater Boston's moving out. Should be cloudy for the next few hours, relatively dry. Maybe some cameos from the sun. And then overnight tonight, cloudy skies blocking the big just-past-full moon falling to about 67 degrees. Tomorrow starting up with clouds, then sun moves in, warming all the way to the mid-80s. It's
2: 549.
23: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775 Endless. less
11: Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information, and this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market.
18: Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner.
11: We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR.
9: For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Back in 2017, after a Trump administration travel ban caused chaos at airports around the country, protesters rushed to the scenes. They gathered in support of detained travelers from a handful of majority Muslim countries. These protesters chanted, held signs, and they sang a simple song by Woody Guthrie. It was a reminder that This Land is Your Land isn't just a campfire song for school kids. It's a celebration of the American landscape, but it's a celebration with EDGE. Today on the country's Independence Day, we're revisiting this 2019 story from NPR's Elizabeth Blair.
22: To understand the song, it helps to understand the guy who wrote it. In February 1940, Woody Guthrie was sitting in his room in a midtown Manhattan hotel called Hanover House. Which was a kind of fleabag hotel. Standing where that fleabag hotel once stood, the late Woody Guthrie's daughter, Nora Guthrie, says her dad might not be keen about the corporate bank across the street, but he'd be thrilled to know what is still on the corner. And I'm sure he ate at a hot dog stand right on this corner many times. And did Woody Guthrie like hot dogs? Loved. (laughs) Hot dogs, fries, and root beer were Sunday brunch, says Nora. Woody Guthrie was a no-frills kind of guy, a deeply curious wanderer. Nora says he'd go out for a pack of cigarettes and not come home for a week or two.
27: I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps in The sparkling sands of her diamond deserts All around me, a voice was a-sounding This land was made for you and me
22: When Woody Guthrie sings This Land, Nora says he's not just singing about deserts and wheat fields.
31: The whole idea of a land is your spot on earth, you know, a
22: spot where you can claim safety, sanity. Safety and sanity. Growing up in Oklahoma, Woody Guthrie didn't have much of either. Cyclones, dust storms, fire, and heartbreak. A new house his father built burnt to the ground. Later, when Woody's older sister Clara was 14, she was ironing on a kerosene stove that caught fire.
27: This one blowed up, caught her a fire, and she run around the house about twice before anybody could catch her. Next day, she died.
22: A uh, choked-up Woody Guthrie told the story to folklorist Alan Lomax in 1940 for the Library of Congress.
27: <clears throat> and my mother, Adam was a little bit too much for her uh, <clears throat> nerves.
22: Ten years later, Woody's mother died in what was then referred to as a hospital for the insane. She suffered from Huntington's disease, a genetic brain disorder that was misunderstood at the time, and the same disease that later killed Woody. Woody's father lost everything. Woody and his siblings were sent to live with friends and family. Eventually, he ended up in Pampa, Texas. When the brutal dust storms hit, he headed to California. Just as the song says, he roamed and rambled across the country, walking, hitchhiking, hopping freight trains, by bus when he could afford it. Nora Guthrie says, in a way, the land was Woody's home, and he did not like to keep still, even when he recorded those sessions with Alan Lomax.
31: And Alan would say, well, come sit down and have something to eat, and Woody would stand up. He'd say, no, I don't want to get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable, because you never know who's going to take your home away.
27: As I went walking that ribbon of highway And I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley, this land was made for you and me.
22: If you look at the original lyrics to This Land is Your Land, Guthrie added a line at the bottom, all you can write is what you see. This Land is Your Land was also a rebuttal to something he heard. smith's version of irving berlin's god bless america was on jukeboxes and the radio everywhere during guthrie's journey across the country he apparently hated it after everything he'd seen america was beautiful but it was in trouble he'd seen dust bowl refugees fighting for their lives and working people living like rats as he put it he originally called his song god blessed america as in already did one interpretation is that Guthrie felt Berlin's anthem was jingoism. Guthrie wanted to sing the truth. In one verse that rarely gets performed, he takes a dig at wealthy landowners.
27: There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, it said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Now, the
22: left leaning politics of This Land Is Your Land are most likely lost on the millions of kids who've been learning the song more than 75 years after it was written. This land. And yet politics is partly how the song spread. Woody Guthrie wasn't a communist, but he sympathized with the cause. He was pro-union and anti-war. He also, as he put it, cussed out high-rents and punk politicians. The late Pete Seeger, who became an icon of folk music, often appeared with Guthrie. He told NPR they were blacklisted as early as the 1940s.
29: We did one program on CBS radio, and a newspaper reporter out said... Red minstrels try to get on the networks, and that was the last job we got.
22: Nora Guthrie says for a time, the only work Seeger could get was singing for young people. Basically, every kid that went to
31: summer camps or kindergarten or college learned this land is your land. And that's how the song really became popularized, not by my father, but by people like Pete Seeger, who was blacklisted.
15: This land is land
22: Land is Your Land has been recorded hundreds of times, but most people don't learn it from a recording. Seeger said the song endures simply because people love to sing it. That song
15: was never played on the radio. It was never played on TV. It was a nothing of a song as far as the commercial world was concerned, but practically
4: everybody in America knew this song.
31: We've always gotten requests from so many thousands of people over the years saying... This should be the national anthem
22: because it's filled with beauty and love of the country. But Noor Guthrie says the family disagrees. This land is your land, she says, belongs to the people, not the government. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
27: This land is your land. This land is mine.
17: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org, From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology. Designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at EBSCO.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. Cloudy for the next few hours. Dry temperatures around the mid-60s overnight tonight, then sunshine tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the
6: best children's hospitals in the nation. org slash answers.
26: I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: The show will go on for the Boston Pops and hundreds of thousands of spectators at the Esplanade tonight. A few hours ago, state police advised the crowd to exit the area and seek shelter from thunderstorms. They've now reopened the gates and the traditional concert starts at 8, the fireworks at 10.30. This is All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, descendants of Frederick Douglass read excerpts from one of his most famous speeches, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? He gave the speech to a group of abolitionists 170 years ago.
5: The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me.
13: This Fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn.
0: Also ahead, the many effects human beings have had on the planet. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
28: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Abortion access has changed dramatically over the last year as 14 states have banned the procedure. As in Paris, Selena Simmons-Duffin reports even more states look likely to ban abortion in the year ahead.
14: Some states moved to ban abortion within minutes of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade last year, including Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. In other states like Florida, even with legislators and governors who would like to ban abortion, the process has been slower because of court challenges. Ushma Upadhyay is a public health researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. She says there has been a surge of people traveling from banned
33: states to the southeast. There are several states in the southeast that are really essential to abortion access. Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina as well.
14: But those states are now either considering or beginning to implement new bans. If and when those bans take effect, it will cut off access for people in the entire Southeast, from West Texas to halfway up the Atlantic coast. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News Russian
28: air defenses foiled what appears to have been an attack by Ukrainian drones aimed at Moscow. The onslaught briefly forcing authorities to close one of the city's international airports, according to officials. The drone strike follows previous similar attacks on the Russian capital. Ukrainian officials did not claim responsibility for the attack, according to Russia's defense minister. Four drones were downed by air defenses on the outskirts of Moscow, and one was jammed and forced down. There were no reports of major casualties or damage. Despite reports of mass shootings in Philadelphia, Fort Worth, Baltimore, and elsewhere over the past few days, new data analysis suggests the nationwide murder rate may actually be falling. And PR's Martin Costi is
26: more. We don't have official national murder statistics in real time. Official figures always lag by more than a year. But crime stats analyst Jeff Asher says you can get a sense of the trend right now if you look at individual cities. And his compilation of 100 urban murder rates shows that right now at the midpoint of 2023, murder is down 11%. It's still not to the point where it was before 2020,
15: but if it does decline at the rate that it's at least suggestive of so far
26: from big cities, it would be historically large. Murder rates jumped sharply in 2020 and some more in 2021, and they're estimated to have decreased slightly in 2022. Martin Costi. NPR News. Yesterday
28: was the day before the 4th of July, but it's going in the record books for more important reason. Officials at the National Centers for Environmental Predictions say July 3rd will go down as the hottest day ever recorded globally, with average global temperatures of 17.01 degrees Celsius or 62.62 degrees Fahrenheit. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WPUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Some weather we're having, Bright spots earlier today turned to gray skies, then rain, some stormy weather this afternoon. In fact, at one point, state police asked people to leave the hatch shell in the area along the Esplanade due to the heavy rains and thunderstorms. The Esplanade was reopened to the public about an hour ago, and people have been returning since then for the concert tonight by the Boston Pops Orchestra. Bob Lewis of Weymouth waited out the bad weather. He has family visiting from Pennsylvania and says they weren't going to miss the Pops for anything.
29: It's uh, on my aunt's bucket list uh, to come see the Boston Pops uh, live uh, for the 4th of July. So that's why we're here, regardless of rain or shine.
0: So what can we expect weather-wise for tonight's Boston Pops concert, which starts at 8, the fireworks at 10.30? For the answer, return to WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Danielle, what's up for about the next hour? It sounds like things are changing a lot.
7: They are definitely changing, Lisa, and in a positive way. The rain is done in the city. It's wrapping up near Plymouth right now. The flash flood warnings have since been canceled and expire for the flooding that was ongoing to our south. On the Esplanade, there's been some breaks of sun. I think that will continue to be the case. There'll still be a lot of clouds around, but really a pleasant evening, a little humid out there, uh, not much wind. It should be generally five miles per hour or less, and that includes uh, when the fireworks kick off and right on through the overnight tonight.
0: And then. For tomorrow, what are you looking for, and, and uh, perhaps you can include the Cape and uh, parts of s- mm-hmm. Southeastern Mass as well, because we know they've had uh, a pretty rough couple of hours
7: yeah rough couple of hours with the thunderstorms that just rolled through and the localized flooding that will be ending in the next hour or so again coming through plymouth right now the back edge should be through the upper cape in the next 20 minutes or so so improvement on cape cod i'd see between 7 and 8 pm especially and then for one and all the next few days actually look really nice Uh, hotter we're going to be in the mid to upper 80s tomorrow thursday and friday we'll probably touch 90 in some spots inland it's going to be humid so you know, it'll feel like the low 90s, kind of classic summer. But the difference is the sun will be out. There'll be a nice blend of sun and clouds, and it won't be as unsettled as we had today. And of course, uh, over the past couple of weeks, for several days. So maybe a pop up storm inland would be isolated, but it looks like a mostly dry stretch, too.
0: What do you know? Some relief. Thank you very uh, much, <laughs> I'll leave you for your Daniel Noise. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Lisa. A reminder that parking restrictions are in place near the Esplanade in Boston. Nobody can park on Memorial Drive near the Longfellow Bridge or in the Cambridge Parkway. Starrow Drive, east and westbound, remains closed from Leverett Circle to Kenmore Square. Massachusetts school teacher Jeff Esper came in second place at the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest in Coney Island, New York today. Esper is a high school teacher from Oxford. He chowed down 49 hot dogs and buns in just 10 minutes. But that was 13 fewer than the winner, Joey Chestnut, who scarfed down 62 hot dogs in the same amount of time. The men's contest was originally canceled due to severe weather, but officials reversed course and held it after about a two-hour delay. In the forecast overnight tonight, as you heard, clouds around, but it should be dry. Temperatures in the mid-60s and then for tomorrow, sunshine eventually. Temperatures up in the mid-80s could have the same thing toward the end of the week, Thursday, and maybe Friday as well. 70 degrees now in Boston at 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded
23: by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. 171 Julys ago, the escaped slave turned orator and activist, Frederick Douglass gave perhaps his most famous speech to a group of fellow abolitionists. He posed this question, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? His address confronted the glaring hypocrisy of a day celebrating freedom in a country that still endorsed the bondage and forced labor of more than one in eight of its residents. And while the institution of slavery has long been abolished, its consequences have endured through the generations. I am the
11: great, great, great granddaughter of
12: Frederick Douglass.
5: Frederick Douglass is my great, 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 great. I've been
10: counting on my fingers since I was
12: like five. I am the great, 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 grandchild of Frederick
10: Douglass. Three years ago, NPR asked some of Frederick Douglass's descendants to read excerpts of that speech. And on this 4th of July, we are again revisiting those words from 1852.
13: This is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. Fellow citizens,
12: I shall not presume to dwell at length on the associations that cluster about this day. The simple story of it is that 76 years ago, the people of this country were British subjects.
5: Oppression makes a wise man mad. Your fathers were wise men, and if they did not go mad, they became restive under this treatment.
12: With brave men, there's always a remedy for oppression. They succeeded, and today, you reap the fruits of their success. The freedom gained is yours, and you, therefore, may properly celebrate this anniversary. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask
11: why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence?
5: Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us?
13: I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary.
12: Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed
11: in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence, bequeathed by your fathers, is shared by you, not
5: by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me.
13: This Fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous
12: joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation
13: must be roused.
5: The propriety of the nation must be startled.
13: The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be
12: proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your
13: celebration is a sham.
5: Your boasted liberty and unholy license.
13: Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless.
5: Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence.
13: Your shouts of liberty
12: and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings.
5: With all your religious parade and solemnity are to him
12: Mere bombast. Fraud. Deception. Impiety. And hypocrisy. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. 4th of July still doesn't mean that much. Um, We're still second-class citizens. I don't think it's hopeless. Somebody once said that pessimism is a tool of white oppression, and I think that's true. I think in many ways we are still um, slaves to the notion that It will never get better. But I think that there is hope. um, And I think it's important that we celebrate Black joy and Black life. And we remember that change is possible, change is probable, um, and that there's
10: hope. That was Isidore Douglas Skinner. You also heard Alexa Ann Watson, Haley Rose Watson, Zoe Douglas Skinner, and Douglas Washington Morris II, all of them descendants of Frederick Douglass, reading his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? You can watch a video of that reading and more of their reflections at npr.org. If we're catching you while you are on your way somewhere today, out to see fireworks maybe, or to and from an airport, well, you're in good company. A record number of Americans are traveling for this holiday, according to AAA, and it's been a hot, stormy, and not always smooth experience this year. NPR's Camila Dominowski joins us now, and Camila, why are so many people traveling?
14: It's a hard question to answer for sure, but I guess I'll just put it this way. Juana, don't you feel like you need a vacation?
10: I do, and I feel like we should both go take one. But anyway, what's the breakdown yeah. of the numbers and how people <laughs> are getting around right now?
14: So as usual, most people are driving. It's actually the biggest number of people ever hitting the road on a July 4th. 43 million people are driving for the holiday. Then you have a small number of people who are taking cruises, trains, buses. That group of people is up from last year, but it's it's still under pre-pandemic levels. It's never recovered from the big decline at the start of the pandemic. But if you look at flying, there are a lot of people flying this year more than 4 million which is definitely more than pre-pandemic it's setting a new record for july 4th and that's even though prices ticket prices are up 40 in some cases 50 percent
10: okay i'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning and this is not exactly feel comforting i've got to say so help me out here how are things going at the airports this weekend what are people seeing
14: um, okay. Uh, brace yourself, Juana. It's been a rough couple of weeks. There's yeah. a lot of reasons. There's been bad weather. There aren't enough air traffic controllers. United in particular had huge problems last week and United blamed the air traffic controller shortage. The flight attendance union blamed United for having some mismanagement. I'll, I'll, I'll just a side note here. The CEO had to apologize last week for flying a private jet on a week where the airline had canceled 3,000 flights. But that was last week. You wanna know about today and tomorrow. So unfortunately, it's still a little bit dicey. Newark, which was a United hub, is really struggling. Today, there were some severe storms predicted, which caused delays in the Southeast, Dallas, Denver. News you can use here, advice from AAA, is if you can get by with just a carry-on and not checking a bag, do that, because then you're more flexible if you do have delays or cancellations.
10: Okay, and what about the roads? What can drivers expect?
14: So gas prices are down slightly from last week. Congestion-wise, most of the traffic is behind us, but if you're driving through a major city, you might wanna wait until a little later in the evening today or, you know, settle in and get ready to listen to a lot of NPR. (laughs) Um, and then last note here, holidays are very dangerous times to drive, and July 4th is particularly bad for drunk drivers. So one note from your friendly car reporter, y'all, please do stay safe out there.
10: Good advice for everyone. Thanks, Camila. Thank you. That's NPR's Camila Dominowski. It's one of the biggest condiment controversies of our time. Should ketchup be kept in the cupboard or in the fridge? Heinz set the internet abuzz recently when their UK branch tweeted their belief that ketchup is a dish best served cold. And of course, the Twitterverse did its thing with passionate defenders of both cold and room temp ketchup weighing in. And since every 4th of July, hundreds of millions of hot dogs and hamburgers are consumed, we wanted to... and. I'm really sorry about this one, catch up with someone familiar with the science behind this debate.
15: I'm Dr. Mel Kramer, and personally, I keep ketchup as well as mustard in the refrigerator.
10: Me too. Kramer, who heads a food safety consulting firm in Florida, says to exercise caution with long-term ketchup storage, but...
15: If you're saying a couple of days, the answer would probably be categorically no. If you're talking about 6, 8, 10, 12 months, There is a good possibility that these microorganisms could get inside the ketchup when you open and close it, and you have the risk of potentially having mold. You have a higher probability of spoilage microorganisms, can have an off taste and off flavor and off colors, too.
10: And Kramer adds that the longer someone keeps ketchup on the shelf, the more likely it is to lose nutritional value, though that's not an issue for most.
15: Ketchup is a condiment. It certainly is not something that one would have to use as a food for their daily dietary intake.
10: Still, even if the science is settled, the public debate is far from over. Even our own All Things Considered staff came down on both sides.
32: The ketchup goes in the fridge, man.
16: I no longer put it in the refrigerator.
2: I keep it in the fridge. Once I open something, it goes in the fridge.
16: I've never seen ketchup kept in the refrigerator at a restaurant, so I keep my bottles of ketchup and packets of ketchup in a cupboard.
10: The ketchup is always kept in the fridge. Of course,
0: you can always just stick with mustard.
10: You're listening to All Things
0: Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Today's last day, the Sumner Tunnel in Boston will be open for a while. The tunnel connects Logan Airport in East Boston with downtown Boston and the North End. It closes at midnight tonight for restoration work and won't reopen until the end of August. Officials are urging drivers to use public transportation instead during that period. The MBTA's blue line and some bus routes will be free throughout the closure. It's six nineteen.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in
0: Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Start your day with WBUR tomorrow morning. A massive statewide campaign is underway to help people maintain health coverage. During a major restructuring of the Mass Health program. We'll get information on that tomorrow right here at ninety point nine WBUR, so join us then. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Texas Rangers this afternoon at Fenway Park. Final score six to two. The teams will go at it again tomorrow night in Boston. This is WBUR.
29: I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
0: Just go to WBUR.org. The rain around greater Boston's moving out should be cloudy for the next few hours, relatively dry. Maybe some bright spots from the sunshine now and then. Then overnight tonight, cloudy skies blocking the just-past-full moon falling to about 67 overnight. Tomorrow, gray skies to start, then sunshine moving in, making it up to the mid-80s, should be another muggy day tomorrow. A flash flood watch is in effect for much of the region south and west of Boston now. The National Weather Service warns passing showers and thunderstorms could lead to the flooding of rivers, streams, and low-lying flood-prone areas. The flood watch is in effect for Middlesex, Worcester, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Bristol counties will be in place until 2 a.m. This is WBUR.
4: WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, Laurenhollerin.com.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
18: And I'm Ari Shapiro. How have humans shaped the planet we live on? A better question might be, is there any way humans haven't shaped the planet?
19: Humans are a cosmopolitan species. Wherever we go, we bring other species with us. These biological invasions cost the global economy $1.4 trillion a year.
18: In a new six-part series on PBS called Human Footprint, biologist and Princeton University professor Shane Campbell-Staten travels the world to wrap his brain around the impact of our species on Earth. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. When I heard about this series, my first thought was, how do you tell the story of human impact on the planet without making it relentlessly bleak and depressing? And you managed to do it without glossing over the reality that Earth faces. So how did you pull that off?
20: Well, you know, when people think about our impact on the planet, I think it's easy to sort of see us as the villains of the story. But the reality is, it's more complicated than that. You know, we are a complicated species, our culture is complicated, our history is complicated, and our impact on the planet is complicated. There are bad things. There are also good things. There are things that are none of of those two. There's things that are just goofy or there are things (laughs) that are just weird. And we explore all of those different impacts.
18: One particularly charming episode of the show is about dogs. What was your biggest takeaway from reporting that out, apart from how cute they are?
20: Yeah, so dogs are adorable. Uh, I myself own a Great Dane. Mm-hmm. And you know when we think about dogs, I think a lot of times we have a tendency to focus on how we have changed them. But dogs have also changed us as well. In um, one way. So for instance, in terms of if we look at you know, human history. You know, dogs have helped us to colonize some of the most extreme environments on the planet. Mm. Um, yeah, I got to go to uh, the Arctic Circle and spend time uh, with this uh, young Inuit dog sled trainer named Devin. Yeah, as a young kid, about maybe 21 years old. I used to
21: watch videos on YouTube of Greenland mushers. You know, I try to do how they did it.
20: You learned how to- How to to run a sled dog team from YouTube?
21: (laughs) Well, not entirely, but it was part of it, yeah.
20: Speaking Speaking with Devin, you know, we went out and um, we went on a, a seal hunt and, you know, talking with him and spending time with his dogs, I realized that our connection with dogs is something that runs really deep. In this case, you're talking about a thousand years deep. One day we we saw these wolves, and they
21: were faster, they had better smell than us. You know, they could hear better than us. So we're like,
20: oh, why don't we befriend this animal? And that connection helped us as a species to conquer one of the most extreme environments on the planet. I've never been any place where I was so absolutely sure if left to my own devices, I would die like 100% for sure die. Yeah, And these dogs have been key uh, to uh, surviving in such an extreme
18: environment. As you were producing this series, were there things that surprised you or was it pretty much sort of like, yeah, I knew about that?
20: You know, as somebody who studies, like I spend my life thinking about, you know, the lasting biological impacts of humans but i realized that that expertise is very narrow in terms of the scope of our human impact going on this journey i think one of the most incredible things was like speaking with people who weren't biologists speaking with fishermen speaking with farmers speaking with like local experts who you know made me realize exactly how intertwined we are with the natural world in all these crazy and unexpected
18: ways. Hmm. Can you tell us about one particular surprise where you were like, whoa, I thought I knew this, but didn't realize that was the state of things?
20: The most intense example I can think of is, so in the last episode of the series, we explore the footprint of cotton.
19: From the shores of an ancient ocean, to the DNA in my cells today, cotton is the thread connecting so much in the South. By 1860, cotton alone represented half of all U.S. exports, and it was reshaping the world in profound ways.
20: You know, I am an African-American. I was raised in the South, uh, in South Carolina. You know, now I'm a biologist who, you know, studies human-induced changes. Obviously domestication is, you know, is a core part of our sort of current biological footprint. And going into that episode coming from both of those backgrounds, it's like, you know, I've got a pretty good feel for what this episode is going to be about. But then along the way it just fundamentally changed. You know, I, you know, met with a biologist we met in Alabama, um, a biologist named uh, Craig McClain, and you know we were standing on these deposits that form the basis of the the black belt that runs through uh, the deep South.
18: It's really shocking. He maps these ancient geological formations onto present day Democratic Republican divides, health outcomes, things that are so present in our lives right now that are a reflection of where oceans were hundreds of millions of years ago.
20: Exactly, and you know, it's something that you'd never think about, you'd never expect. It's a a time frame, arc of history that just seems so impossible, yet there it is, right in front of your face. You know, which counties across the South go Democrat, which go Republican, instances of obesity. All of these things, they trace an ancient coastline that has not existed for a hundred million years.
18: You know, in the first episode, somebody talking about invasive species says, we made the problem, we have to fix it. With all the changes that you document, the idea of fixing it or undoing it seems totally unrealistic. We're not going to return to some kind of like Garden of Eden prelapsarian state. So Mm. what do you think our goal should actually be? not specifically with invasive species, just broadly when we look at the human impact on the world?
20: I think at this point, our goal should be, one, understanding exactly what this impact is, understanding that our decisions, be they intentional or unintentional, are going to have a really important impact on the world around us. I think the second thing is, you know, a conversation needs to happen in terms of what we want this planet to be. The Earth is fundamentally different and it's not going to go back, especially as long as we're around. So what that means is that the future is literally what we make it and we need to decide what we want that future to be.
18: Biologist and Princeton University professor Shane Campbell-Staten is the host of the new series, Human Footprint, on PBS. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for
34: having me.
23: This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com.